Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Welcome back, everyone. We've dropped behind a little in Come Follow Me, but I'll do my best to catch up over the next few weeks. Today we're going to talk about the final chapter in the book of Mosiah, Mosiah 29. We left off in Mosiah 28 talking about this major transition that Nephite society has undergone. The sons of Mosiah have requested and been granted permission to launch a revolutionary expedition to the land of Nephi. This expedition is unlike previous attempts to conquer or reclaim the ancestral homeland. This is an effort to gather in the lost tribe of the Lehites, the Lamanites, back to the knowledge of God, the covenant, and the reconciliation of the family of Lehi. Since all of his sons have now returned to the land of Nephi, Mosiah has a hard choice to make. What will he do with the kingdom that his father passed to him? Not only that, Mosiah was the inheritor of both the political and religious relics of the Nephites, the national treasures, including the Sword of Laban, the Liahona, the Brass Plates, the Nephite records, and the Jaredite interpreters. In the last verse of chapter 28, which was originally the beginning of Mormon's final chapter of the Book of Mosiah, we learn that Mosiah has decided to pass the relics to Alma, the son of Alma, the high priest of the church. We maybe overlooked the weight of this decision. It's difficult for us to understand the importance of these relics to the Nephite people. We could try and draw modern analogies, but they wouldn't quite fit. What we can try and understand is what a turnaround it must have been to see Alma, the son of the high priest, a former leader in the effort to destroy the church, now as inheritor of the most sacred symbols of the Nephite peoplehood. It's a testament to what could have been years of efforts from Alma to repair the damage that he had done. Think of what it would take for you to trust somebody who has spent years trying to destroy your community. You would have to see real, sustained evidence of change. Think of what Mosiah would have had to see from Alma in order to trust him with these sacred charges. Finally, we shouldn't forget that Mosiah has used the Jaredite interpreters to translate the Jaredite records. It would be unreasonable to think that somehow the introduction of those new scriptures into Nephite culture didn't have an impact. Now we have to find out how all of this shakes out, so let's get into the chapter. Picking up with Mosiah, passing the relics and records to Alma, chapter 29 begins with the political problem. Mormon tells us, now when Mosiah had done this, he sent out throughout all the land among all the people, desiring to know their will concerning who should be their king. And it came to pass that the voice of the people came, saying, We are desirous that Aaron, thy son, should be our king and our ruler. We already see the problem. Aaron's gone. So Mosiah sends out a proposal in written form to all of the people. His proposal begins with him informing his people, that he can't pass the kingship to Aaron, because he's already rejected it, and he's afraid that giving his throne to another may set off a civil war. That might sound unreasonable to us. We regularly have transitions of power in the modern world, and while there's definitely contention in modern politics, often these transitions are accomplished without violence. 
So what does Mosiah know that we don't? One thing that he knows better than us is his people. He knows the potential fracture points, and he knows all of the implications of having a church community and a community of unbelievers, all Nephites. He's also just translated the Jaredite records. We don't have the full records there. All we have is 15 chapters in the book of Ether, Moroni's abridgment of Mosiah's translation. But remember that there were 24 plates, and while we don't know just how extensive they were, we can safely assume that we only have a fraction of the Jaredite record. What we do have is, among other things, the story of generations of conflict over the question of kingship. So we can see a warning there in the text for Mosiah. Apart from all of this, Mosiah lets his humanity show. In verses 8 through 9, he says, Now I say unto you, let us be wise and consider these things, for we have no right to destroy my son. Neither should we have any right to destroy another, if he should be appointed in his stead. And if my son should turn again to his pride and vain things, he would recall the things which he had said, and claim his right to the kingdom, which would cause him and also this people to commit much sin. So apart from his own community and the history of the Jaredites, he also has a better knowledge of his own son, Aaron. We like to think that conversion is unidirectional, like once these scriptural figures have dramatic conversions, they never look back. It's cleaner that way, and when we compare our own lives to the stories we find in the scriptures, we see very acutely our own setbacks and have a hard time seeing theirs. Mosiah, however, does not know his son as a name in scripture. He knows him as a human being who could easily backtrack if he succumbed to the temptation of power and status. Mosiah's proposal, he hopes, will avoid this and promote sustained peace. He proposes a system of judges. They don't need a legislature because they already have laws based on the law of Moses, but they need people to apply the laws of God to the very human situations that will arise. Before he goes into detail with his proposal, he needs to address the flaws of kingship, and he has a really strong case study to work from. Noah, a righteous king like Benjamin or Mosiah, will try and exercise righteous judgment, he says resist corruption, and serve the people. However, a king like Noah promotes a system and culture of wickedness and destruction. Kings like Noah begin to manipulate and shape the laws to serve their own self-interest. And either you get with the program or you are considered disloyal. We spent enough time looking into Noah's kingdom, the role of the priesthood, and how a system built on corruption, vanity, and oppression weakens a people to the point that they can't endure the challenges presented by mortality. Whether it's the poverty of those in the community, the natural man and the presence of prejudice that results from self-interest, pandemics, or threats from the outside forces like the Lamanites, a kingdom like Noah's, built to funnel power and wealth to a small body of elites, is vulnerable to destruction. We don't get any record of this, but we can imagine Mosiah sitting down with Alma, the high priest, to think through what a new type of government might look like. Remember that Alma was the first Nephite on record to reject outright the offer of kingship. When the church wanted him to be their king, he chose to remain only the high priest of the church, and he made this choice because he wanted the church to be a community that didn't place one person above another. We can imagine Mosiah and Alma sitting down together in council, 
and Alma making a strong case against the continuation of the kingdom. Remember, though, that the Nephite people and the church are not the same thing. There are Nephites who are unbelievers. So if Mosiah wants to keep the community together, he's going to need to create an overarching structure that applies to members of the church and unbelievers alike. That's where the judges come in. Mosiah says, Therefore choose you by the voice of this people judges, that ye may be judged according to the laws which have been given you by our fathers, which are correct, and which were given them by the hand of the Lord. We shouldn't read this to be some ancient form of direct democracy or republicanism. Those systems are dependent on the idea of individual rights. Nephite society was more likely organized in kinship systems or extended family networks. Think of something like a collection of tribes with the tribal elder or head speaking in behalf of the family network. This isn't a revolutionary idea for the Nephites. Their kings were to some degree chosen by the voice of the people already. Mosiah says, Now it is not common that the voice of the people desireth anything contrary to that which is right, but it is common for the lesser part of the people to desire that which is not right. Therefore this shall ye observe and make it your law, to do your business by the voice of the people. Again, some people read Mosiah's words as a kind of endorsement of modern forms of government, things that are familiar to us. I really don't think that's what's going on here. Mosiah could very well just be making an observation drawn from Nephite history. Most of their kings chosen by the voice of the people have been good kings. The Nephite kingdom has existed in one form or another for over four centuries, even when the Nephites struggled with wickedness. There are exceptions to this, however. Noah's people wanted nothing to do with the Binadi. Even though they were being oppressed by Noah and his priests, it was the people who turned Abinadi over to Noah. Before that, the Nephites were almost destroyed during the life of the first Mosiah, which caused him to flee the land of Nephi. And we know that they were struggling with wickedness for generations leading up to that time. So Mosiah isn't proposing a hard and fast rule here, or some universal political philosophy. He's extrapolating lessons from Nephite and Jaredite history. He even says, And if the time comes that the voice of the people doth choose iniquity, then is the time that the judgments of God will come upon you. Yea, then is the time that he will visit you with great destruction, even as he has hitherto visited this land. So there's the connection. If the Nephites had already operated to some degree by the voice of the people, and Mosiah is simply deriving lessons from the past to inform his proposition, What's the difference in this new system? The difference is that before they were just choosing a king who has power over the entire community and who ruled for life. Now Mosiah is proposing that they choose judges with more limited power and levels of judges who can check the powers of the others. You can understand his thinking here. If kings generally work out, but on the rare occasion they result in destruction, then maybe that destruction can be mitigated by putting checks on those in power. We'll see that, while this might be a reasonable position to take, it isn't perfect. Within a little more than a generation, Mosiah's system will completely collapse after years of struggling under corruption. The greatest strength of Mosiah's proposition isn't its political solution to the problem of inheritance or the concentration of power. It's that Mosiah cuts through the idea 
that any one system of government can actually be the whole solution. In verses 30 through 32, he says, And I command you to do these things in the fear of the Lord. And I command you to do these things in that ye have no king, that if these people commit sins and iniquities, they shall be answered upon their own heads. For behold, I say unto you, the sins of many people have been caused by the iniquities of their king. Therefore, their iniquities are answered upon the heads of their kings. And now I desire that this inequality should be no more in this land, especially among this my people. But I desire that this land be a land of liberty, and every man enjoy his rights and privileges alike, so long as the Lord sees fit that ye may live and inherit the land. Regardless of whether the people are living under kings, judges, or any other type of system, the issue is and always will be the people and their covenant with God. We can draw an analogy here to the Old Testament. The Israelites went through a period of judges. Israelite judges were kind of like tribal chieftains that took over after the death of Joshua, and they struggled to keep the people righteous. The book of Judges is pretty rough, but it leads into First and Second Samuel, where the people go to Samuel and ask him to find them a king because they want to be like other kingdoms. Samuel isn't too happy with this request. They aren't supposed to be like other kingdoms. They're supposed to be loyal to their covenant God. But God tells Samuel, give the people what they want. So Samuel finds Saul, who is chosen from the smallest tribe, and starts off humble and strong, but struggles under the power and eventually descends into wickedness. This gives way to the rise of David and his descendants, and will eventually result in a true heir to the throne of David, a Messiah. A lot of emphasis is put on leaders and their impact, but the issue is and will always be the covenant. Righteous leaders help. I have three sons. When I find public figures that I can hold up as an example, I jump at that opportunity. When those public figures aren't there, I make leaders an example of what not to become. Mosiah's point is that it needs to be clear that the people are the ones who are accountable for their covenant to God. King or no king, they will be the ones who either benefit from their faithfulness or suffer the consequences of their wickedness. Samuel didn't want people to take their gaze off of their covenant relationship with God. He didn't want to put someone in between them and God, but they insisted, so God granted their request. And God is so faithful that he even used it to direct their gaze back to him through Jesus Christ. Mosiah seems to be trying to remove the distraction of the king and make clear that the people are ultimately responsible for their faithfulness. We don't need to conclude here that government isn't a factor in righteousness, but that perhaps more importantly, it's a reflection of something deeper. So if a government is unjust, it is both the result and the generator of the wickedness of the people. We don't get Mosiah's full message here, but Mormon seems to think that we have what we need in order to move on. In verses 37 through 47, we get the reaction to and the result of Mosiah's proposal. The people are convinced and support the dissolution of the Nephite kingdom and the construction of a new governing system. The transition doesn't happen immediately. Mosiah serves out the remainder of his days as king, and Mormon tells us that the people did wax strong in love towards Mosiah, Yea, they did esteem him more than any other man, for they did not look upon him as a tyrant who was seeking for gain, yea, for that lucre which doth corrupt the soul, for he had not exacted riches of them, neither had he delighted in the shedding of blood. 
but he had established peace in the land, and he had granted unto his people that they should be delivered from all manner of bondage. Therefore they did esteem him, yea, exceedingly, beyond measure. What a testament to his leadership. I'm envious. The people began to construct the new government with this system of judges, and Alma the Younger is made the first chief judge. He's also been made the new high priest of the church by his father. So we see this consolidation of religious and political authority in Alma. This isn't unique for the Nephites. We've talked about how the Nephite kings were traditionally the religious authorities, but this is going to get tricky. Remember, not all Nephites belong to the church. So Alma will be asked to wear two hats. Functionally, he's basically a king, but with a bifurcated kingdom and a system of judges to help take the burden of rule off of him. This is going to present real challenges that we'll see play out at the beginning of the book of Alma. Mormon finishes the book of Mosiah by saying that it's been 509 years since Lehi left Jerusalem. And from here on out, he's going to reckon the time by the creation of this new system of government, what he'll call the reign of the judges. In short, we're 91 years out from the signs of Christ's birth, and it's going to be an eventful 91 years. The book of Mosiah began with Mosiah being made king, and it ends with the dissolution of that kingdom. At the very center of the book is the founding of the Church of Christ. Alma, the founder of that church, is now dead. The interaction of the legacies of Mosiah and Alma will drive this story going forward. That's it for the book of Mosiah. It's an incredible work with relevancy in our lives, including many examples of what not to do. The book of Mosiah has many moments that should give us pause and even make us uncomfortable with assumptions that are common today. Are we not all beggars? Thanks for listening. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at soundcloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Mm-hmm.